Hi and welcome to the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 15th of December 2015. A podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data. My name is Dave and here is my co-host, Jon. Hi Dave. Hey Jon. Happy to be here. So, what have you been up to for the last couple of weeks? Uh, doing the regular things, of course, meeting with a lot of customers. It's nice. We've been doing this in this region for a bit about a year now, and you can see people really moving from their starting positions into the real production system. So, was at a big bank last week. They're looking at putting it at a real central part of their situation. Another customer had just finished their pilot and were pretty happy and uh, had to come in to just look over what they did and. It was nice to see what they did, been able to give them some extra recommendations to make it better. But uh, now it's, uh, it's, very, it's very, ha- very nice to see things going on this way, progressing this way. What have you been up to? Yeah, I have to say that's my actually that's my favorite part of the uh, of the job is actually going and seeing you know the the pilots as they complete and actually uh, seeing what they've done and and how excited they are about what they're going to be doing next and that sort of thing. So that's yeah, great to see. Um, so my last, uh, my last couple of weeks, um, been sort of planning the next set of masterclasses, sort of topics and venues and that sort of thing. So there should be some interesting stuff coming out, uh, next year now. So we've got a, a couple of ideas of, of topics and I think there's going to be some, some pretty exciting stuff happening. So that looks, looks promising. Um, going to keep us in suspense here, not telling us what's oh, going to be about. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> absolutely keeping in suspense. Uh, but all I can all I can say is that it's going to be a lot of fun, as always. Um, I had a, a really interesting uh, workshop meeting as well. So this was a so a prospect, I guess, rather than a customer who's uh, looking at migrating from um, a competing distribution, a competing Hadoop distribution, and. Um, it was one of those kind of kitchen sink meetings where you know literally everything gets discussed and so you know, they're they're reasonably um, knowledgeable about hadoop they've been running it for you know a couple of years so they you know they're over the the sort of the initial teething troubles and and sort of that initial knowledge gap but at the same time their their knowledge is also stagnated a little bit so there's a lot of conversations of bringing them up to speed on some of the newer technologies within the Hadoop ecosystem. There's also, you know, answering sort of various uh, FUD or fear, uncertainty and doubt type questions that have obviously been planted there by uh, competition and all that sort of thing. So it was quite, it was quite good. It was quite an interesting meeting. You know, lots of lots of interaction, lots of really good in sort of intelligent questions. Um, and then we actually had a follow-on session from that a couple of days later, where they basically presented to us their sort of their their five use cases that they're planning on um, implementing on their new platform, and uh, they they just wanted to get a, a good feel for how we would recommend that uh, they implement them. You know what sort of technologies they should use, um, any downsides or upsides to some of the options they'd already outlined for themselves so it was it was pretty good we had uh, some really really good conversation and uh, and hopefully things will uh, progress smoothly yeah, it's interesting to hear that a customer that's been doing hadoop and is well along as you say still has a problem of stagnating in their knowledge curve yeah i think it's you know the problem with some of the distributions is that they they lag 
um, quite significantly behind the open source community. So um, you know you get you get into a situation very easily where if you're not keeping up to date with things, then it's it's very easy to get uh, left behind a little bit. So it was you know it, it's something that I, I do see happening now and again. People sort of lose touch with the cutting edge, and they they sort of uh, they're stuck with what they've got, and what they've got is fine. It, it's working for them okay, but they're they're missing out on a lot of uh, some of the next generation opportunities. Yeah, it does prove the point that even if you are the preferred vendor, you still have to keep on working and keeping the customers up to date, or they will start uh, looking around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, and the final thing, really, is uh, I did a webinar on the connected car, which is uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting topic. It's sort of a blending of um, IoT or Internet of Things um, type material where you've got lots of uh, you know sensor data outside of a, a network uh, spewing information back into a central location. But then you've also got the combination of, of, of that with you know more um, sort of high density manufacturing type uh, information. So you know uh, a car is um, you know, will have an in excess of about thirty different uh, computer systems in it today, and you know each of those um, bringing out telemetry data and and anything else um, you know is going to create about between one to uh, one to one and a half gigabytes of data every hour so you know you can imagine that uh, if you've got a fleet of cars that you're um, you're generating set that sort of level of sensor data across uh, it's going to mount up pretty quickly was that webinar only about Hadoop or did you also talk about things like NiFi yeah so it was definitely a mixture of all of the above um, there was uh, some information about Hadoop and the processing and sort of um, analysis layer. There was a section on Apache NiFi um, and the sort of overall collection and data flow um, array. And then there was also some really nice uh, pieces at the end about um, actual use cases, customer use cases of some of the benefits that they've seen. And honestly, some of the some of the cost savings that uh, organisations have been able to make through basic sort of data collection is really quite quite impressive. So. It was uh, quite a lot of fun. I'm assuming the webinar is now available for replay? Indeed, as always. So I need to put a link in the show notes for this one. Sounds like an idea. So that's uh, that's our last uh, couple of weeks in review. Um, coming up next, we've got uh, a section on high-level Hadoop architectures. Everything from uh, direct-to-text storage to hybrid in the cloud. Stay tuned. And welcome back to the next section of this podcast. In this section, we're going to talk, as Dave mentioned before, about high-level Hadoop architectures, um, basically focusing on hardware and imp- uh, implementation options. So, Dave, what's the first item you want to talk about? So, the first one, I guess, is the, the most commonly um, deployed architecture that we know, which is just s- traditional rack mount servers with direct attached storage. Um you know, I think I'm probably about right in saying that something like 90, 90 to ninety five percent of of customers I talk to 
are deploying with this sort of architecture. Do you agree, seeing the same sort of pattern where you are? Yes, definitely. I mean, the, the direct attached storage is exactly how Hadoop started. It's, uh, it's what allows Hadoop to stay in the uh, economically reasonable area. It's, uh, it, it allows you to not have to use expensive uh, hardware equipment. Disks are pretty cheap these days, and having a lot of small boxes gives you more parallelism, gives you more performance, so it's just a marriage made in heaven. On the other hand, we do see the other uh, more traditional solutions cropping up here and there. But the yeah, direct attached storage still has a lot of advantages, doesn't it? It's easy to scale up. It's easy to scale horizontally. It uh, just makes sense, basically. Yeah, agreed. Um, you know, some organizations are coming out with uh, hardware that's supposedly you know, specifically for this kind of uh, these kinds of scale out sort of use cases. Um, but I think you know the traditional rack mount servers, you know, maybe 12, 12 data drives one to two terabytes in size, um, you know, a, a fairly decent um, pair of, I guess, dual socket, um, you know, six to eight core uh, Xeon CPUs. And, you know, probably looking at uh, a, a pair of OS drives there somewhere, um, you know, the fairly standard configuration that uh, the majority of, of people can get started with today. Yeah, it's going to be a slight difference between your master nodes and your slave nodes uh, when you talk about these uh, system disks. Some master nodes usually have some mirrored system disks just for that little added uh, failsafe in there. For slave nodes, if you have more than a dozen nodes, you don't really care about that anymore. Yeah, I mean, I I tend to see it as like somewhere between 40 to 60 nodes. If you've got more than 40 to 60 nodes, then really the resilience for you is in your cluster level rather than at your individual node level. Um, so you can probably cut down on OS disks on the um, uh, on the slave nodes, and you can probably cut down to single network links and that sort of thing. But if you're less than forty to sixty nodes, you probably don't have enough overall capacity in your cluster to actually uh, um, you know cut that down. So you probably want the individual nodes to still be quite resilient. Not sure if I totally agree with you there. I would start being cheap and a little, little on a smaller cluster, but hey, that's why we have different opinions, right? That's true. That's true. There's one thing though. I've talked to a customer last week, and they're think that looking at procurement for their hardware, and they were looking at a partner, a local consultancy firm, and. Even though they were looking at these simple direct attached storage, small pizza box servers. They got offered servers that cost about uh, well close to ten thousand euros a piece. Ouch! And that's just crazy. Were they made out of unobtainium or something? <laughs> Industri- Industrium, or what is it called? <laughs> yeah, I think they were delivered, hand delivered by uh, uh, Iron Man. <laughs> now, I mean, you really have to be careful here because the traditional systems for enterprise solutions they tend to be way up market for what you want for a Hadoop cluster, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, some people will just go with their traditional hardware vendor that they've always used within their enterprise, and you know, there's nothing wrong with that. You may be paying slightly over the odds, but then again, hopefully, if you're buying in enough volume, you'll get a, a fairly decent discount on it. But uh, I also see a lot of organisations as they as they're growing their environments, starting to look at some of the uh, some of the other tiers of uh, hardware providers. So people that may traditionally have a preferred hardware vendor of someone like HP or IBM, maybe then looking at uh, 
someone like Quanta or Supermicro or something like that just to to drive the cost down. Yeah, definitely. Especially once they've got, had gotten their feet wet, so they had, they know what they have. The first couple of nodes in the cluster when they're just starting out, those are traditional vendors, the ones they know. And once they see that it just works with simple hardware, they can they can do make that move definitely. Yeah, agreed. So the next step, well, the thing we we see happening a lot now is uh, the NAS SAN situation coming into the Hadoop world where. Existing infrastructures want to reuse their existing SAN structures or some vendors actually try to set up a new Hadoop cluster with uh, SAN storage. What's your view on that? So I think if you're using uh, SAN storage for a pilot, then I think that works absolutely fine. Um, you know, you need to be slightly careful and make sure you uh, limit the uh, I.O. that the data nodes can actually apply on that SAN because uh, it's it's actually quite an effective way of doing a denial of service. You know, the way that Hadoop works is, you know, you submit a, a particular query or a particular job, and pretty much all of the data nodes light up at once due to that level of parallelism, and they'll try and, you know, pull all the data. So you if you're not sort of uh, rate limiting them, then you can potentially swamp uh, a small and even medium-scale um, storage attack, net, attack networks. Um I think if you as you go into some of the solutions that are more dedicated solutions for for this kind of uh, deployment, so if you start looking at things like Isilon, I think that can make more sense. Um, if it's you know it, really for me, it's it's a question of is this a core part of your IT infrastructure? You know, if if all of your data, all of your corporate data is you know stored on something like Isilon. I kind of get it, you know, it would be crazy to then go and set up a separate uh, data silo um, just to store your Hadoop information. It all depends on the amount of complexity you add to the system for me. If you already have Isilon and it's being managed by a group, then that just works. And you can actually make your Hadoop installation less complex by just reusing what you have. If on the other hand, you have a new Hadoop cluster and you add a new Isilon cluster it gets more complex and, well, Hadoop is complex enough without having to add things. Yeah, I guess that it, as as with a lot of these things, the answer is it depends. And, you know, it's very much a horses for courses type option. So some it will work for some people and it will not make sense for others. Yeah, well, there's particular uh, things that can mean you need it. Like uh, I've seen Isilon and ClusterFS and other things used because of their uh, geolocation or not not geolocation georeplication capabilities if you're looking at disaster recovery that can be something that's useful for you but as you say it really depends on the situation yeah very good point on the georeplication it's uh, something that hadoop isn't currently very good at um you can use things like uh, you know falcon to to replicate data from one location to another but it's not quite the same yeah and again, the complexities, a Falcon stream could be more complex to keep up and running than a standard geo-replication thing included in the hardware layer. Very true. Now, another part where you can see a lot of NAS stores, of course, is in a, a cloud virtualization environment where your virtual machines are running on compute nodes and basically most of the storage is somewhere on a sandbox, NAS box somewhere. So that's definitely a place where you can see a lot of stand storage coming in. And at this point, as you said before, internet, no, not internet, network connectivity is very important. You have to make sure your bus is big enough or else it will suck your NAS system dry. 
But in a cloud environment, it's pretty much impossible to do anything but that. Having local attached storage is possible, of course, but then you kind of negate all the advantages of the flexibility that clouds gives you. Yeah, I mean, the, there are so many options with uh, with cloud architectures. I think it's definitely worthy of a podcast all of its own. But, uh, you know, you've got uh, yeah, Azure, AWS, Google Compute Cloud, um, Rackspace, and, and many others all off offering you know combinations of you can do your own infrastructure as a service style deployment many of them also have um you know um, platform as a service type options or software as a service type options for hadoop so there's there's lots of different options that you can consume hadoop on a public cloud and there's also something, some movement going on there because I think uh, the big three there is your uh, Amazon and Google Cloud. They all have released some kind of special big data instances or big data storage uh, in their public clouds. They kind of found that the existing infrastructures they were offering weren't exactly fitted good, for, weren't a good fit for a Hadoop uh, environment. And they've been working on this a lot. And I know for a couple of those, their biggest change isn't really what kind of storage they're using, but the network infrastructure between it, just to make that bottleneck go away. Yep, the uh, the rise and continued rise of Hadoop is inevitable, and uh, cloud providers are definitely cashing in on that. And of course, there are some technologies today that can uh, fake local disk attachments through a SAN. If you think, uh, if you look at things like Ceph which actually is a SAN solution that offers block storage objects which you can mount locally, a bit like the old iSCSI from uh, olden years. That's actually a good way of almost having a direct attached storage. Just make sure that your SAN is able to do the full parallel communication to all data slaves at the same time, because, again, that bottleneck is, that's the monster, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Ceph is essentially your... uh your 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 software open source software implementation of uh, of, of block storage um oh, file based storage is is still coming along but it's still considered not quite ready for production use with ceph yet so block storage and object storage only for ceph right now yeah i think not only for ceph i think the moment you go to file system uh, sharing then just like NFS had the bottleneck of having a single server that served everything, even Ceph as well, the Ceph file system sharing, I think also has a concept of a index node or file system structure node that has to deal stuff. That's one of the advantages of HDFS, where the name node, even though it's still a single point, uh, not a single point of failure if you have it in high availability, but still you have to communicate everything with the, uh, with the name node before you can uh, touch data on a slave somewhere the way it's been set up is that the name node has to do as little as possible to eliminate that uh, bottleneck and that's only possible because hcfs basically has a uh, write once uh, don't mutate the file uh, structure in there anymore i know that ceph really goes for the full POSIX compliant file system which means that that name node has a lot more work to do and that in the test that i did and that's that's a couple of months ago now but they still had a big bottleneck going on there Yep, like many of these technologies, evolving quickly. And that's what open source does for you. Absolutely. Now, one thing I do get asked a lot is uh, specifically object store, specifically S3 on Amazon. 
when people ask me, is S3 a good place to work on? I traditionally tell them no, because Object Store is built for being cheap and not being so flexible or performant. However, lately I've seen people actually use S3 based in HDFS, so it does work. Have you had experience with that? Uh, some experience, yeah. I mean, the the things that I like about using S3 are similar to the kind of things you mentioned earlier about um, using a different underlying uh, NAS solution. You know, you can do things like uh, geo-replication of data very, very cheaply. Um, you know, you can use that as your essentially as your disaster recovery solution so you you replicate your s3 from one region to another region so that should one region go down you can easily spin up the uh, environment completely in a completely different region so you know it, it, yes it's a, it's quite a cheap option uh, but it also gives you a lot of uh, a lot of flexibility albeit you're right there is a, a certain uh, a certain sort of impact on performance you're not going to get as uh, as rapid a level of performance with uh, something like that running natively off s3 as you would if it's running off instant storage but it's going to be you know probably an order of magnitude cheaper to to run and operate and you have that built-in dr so it's difficult to argue with that you know if you need a really high level of performance then you know at the very least you could be using s3 as uh, as a backup solution, something to archive your uh, your data lake back off to. Yeah, as a backup solution, definitely. That's ideal for that, of course. But, well, it's I guess it's good that people have the choice. If you want to have something performant and are willing to pay for it, you can go for the instant storage. If you want to have something cheaper, well, you can fall back on S3 or something like that. Well, it's good to have choice. Absolutely. And, well, that choice also is valid for the question between on-premise or in-cloud. That's always a question I get asked. Should I do it in hardware on my own data center? Or can I just put it in the cloud somewhere? And there as well, it's uh, all a matter of, uh, yeah, you have a choice and you have to make a good choice. It all depends where your data is resting today. Yeah, I mean, for me, that really lies to exactly as you said, where's your data today? You know, if, if all your infrastructure is already in the cloud, then, you know, of course you should deploy your data lake in the cloud as well. You know, it doesn't make sense to ship all of your data to an internal environment but similarly if your uh, if all of your data is currently on premise in a data center it would be a little bit strange to go and spin up your data lake in the cloud so another another architecture that often comes up is um, people talking about openstack so there are a couple of options you can obviously use a, a hosted openstack deployment so hp have their their uh, helion cloud based on openstack Rackspace have an OpenStack cloud. I'm sure there are many, many others out there. Um, or, of course, you can run OpenStack within your own data centers. Now, for me, this is um, very similar to the questions about cloud generally. You know, I, I can see that if you're going to be, you know, you have a certain workload that involves spinning up um, Hadoop clusters, running something on them, and then tearing them down again, then, you know, I think that can make a lot of sense. But... I'm not sure that I I am fully bought into the idea of just permanently running a uh, a data lake on uh, an OpenStack cloud uh, within your own data center. That that to me just seems like too many layers of abstraction. Well, you do get into some customers where there's been a decision by IT to do everything on cloud. They have virtualized their entire data center, 
and there's simply no option anymore to do it on hardware. So in that case, basically they make one virtual machine that covers a whole chassis and well, it's virtualized. You pay the penalty, small as it may be these days, but that's just the way they have to do it. Yeah, that is very true. And I must admit, I, I do I, you know, I know several customers where they, they just no longer have the ability to provision bare metal. You know, they, they only are able to deploy virtual now. And uh, yeah, they, they do that similar sort of model, either, you know, one, one VM per uh, physical host, or some of them are deploying two VMs per physical host, just dependent on their particular sort of use cases and deployment styles. So yeah, I, I kind of I kind of get it. I see that, but I see that more happening with traditional virtualization like uh, VMware than I do with um, something like OpenStack. Oh yeah, totally agree. VMware is the king in that field, definitely. Okay, I think we've uh, covered this object fairly well now. This was a more gener generic uh, overview of the possibilities. We will be revisiting these things in the future because most of these really deserve their own dedicated podcast. But uh, for, the, for now, that's it. And when we get back, we will be handling the questions from our audience. Okay, so in this last section of the podcast, we answer questions we receive from you, our listeners, our faithful audience. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the podcast, please send an email to podcast at roaringelephant.org or use our Hadoopcast Twitter handle or use our website www.roaringelephant.org where you can find out more information about this podcast and, and submit something to the contact form. So, first question. Uh, doesn't having a SAN or NAS-based system break the concepts of data locality? I guess it does. Obviously, having a SAN means your disks are local to your system. On the other hand, when Hadoop was first built, uh, created, it was basically only doing MapReduce. Things like in-memory analytics were totally unheard of. Uh, streaming never happened either. Today, with those things really being a big part of Hadoop installations today, data locality might not be important for you. If you're doing memory analytics, basically you read all your data in the memory at the start of the Burke, and from that point on, you don't touch the disk anymore. So at that point, even though it breaks the data locality, it might not be a big issue. What do you think? Well, I, th I think there have also been uh, other white papers that have come out in, in recent years basically saying that with the overall speed and increasing speed of uh, data networks, you know, the, the pretty much constant availability of 10 gig Ethernet in data centers today, then also for that reason, data locality is becoming uh, less and less important as well. I mean, I, it's still something that I, I like to see because I think it... It makes sense from a, um, a combined compute and storage um, perspective, but you know I, I can't disagree that uh, it's it's being it's being less and less relevant as time progresses and as networks get faster. As you say, different different use cases may make it even less relevant. So uh, yeah, times they are a changing. They definitely are. 
that's a good thing. <laughs> okay, next question. Can I mix drive size and drive types within a cluster or even within the same node? What do you say? So, I mean, there are a couple of options. You can you can just mix the drive types and sizes so you can have a mixture of, uh, you know, smaller, small, fast SSDs and uh, large um, sort of archival tier or archival quality uh, rotational storage. But if all you do is just put the same drives in, you need to change a couple of settings to ensure that when the small drives uh, fill up, the uh, data node isn't immediately marked as failed. Um, so typically, I'd, I'd certainly recommend that uh, you don't just go ahead and do that. And instead, you use something like HDFS tiered storage, which gives you the ability to uh, set policies. So you can say, you know, certain data sets, you can tag them with uh, put these data sets, primarily put all three replicas on SSD or put, you know, a replica on SSD and, a, and two replicas on um, you know, standard fast rotational or one replica on fast rotational and two replicas on archive. Yeah, definitely. And with a tiered storage, isn't it the case that in that case you have a chassis with slow disk, fast disk, SSD? So you do in, the, in fact have uh, different types and sizes within a certain uh, chassis? Yep, absolutely. So, I mean... It means you can mix the uh, mix the drive sizes and types within the chassis, or you know you could go for the option of having um, you know dedicated chassis for certain storage types. I personally think it makes more sense to kind of distribute your storage types amongst the uh, the data nodes, so you don't get any hot areas on the cluster. But uh, you know, horses for courses. Yeah. And apart from the tiered storage, you of course have the, uh, if you're using Yarn, which you should be, you have the um, labels, the node labels you can install, where you can also make a differentiation between uh, archive nodes with a lot of storage and more compute-oriented uh, nodes with less big disks. Yeah, uh, actually, that uh, if you'll forgive me, that brings me back to a point on the, the SAN and NAS um, side of things. One one benefit of like the the SAN NAS um, option is that it does allow you to scale your storage uh, at a different rate to the way you scale your compute. So if you have something that's very very heavily compute oriented, but you're not increasing your storage level at the same time, then obviously if you've got you know separated compute and storage, it does allow you to scale those things independently. Just something that uh, popped into my mind as you mentioned that. Yeah, definitely good point. So um, another question then: hybrid clusters. So for me, this is this is a bit like the uh, a bit like the unicorn. Um, you know, the the ability to burst into the cloud where you have your on-premise environment that uh, can handle the uh, the day-to-day workloads, but you you want to be able to burst into the cloud when you have um, you know additional peaks of workload. Now, personally, I. Uh, Anyone that says you can just simply burst into the cloud with Hadoop, I think, is either crazy or has uh, has been uh, staring at the sun for too long. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it very much depends on that uh, big data thing. If your cluster is primarily built to really process huge amounts of data, cloud bursting means that you have to copy that data to the cloud in a whole or partially at least. And that might not be a good idea because it takes a lot of time. That's the whole 
reason because Hadoop is so popular due to the parallel access you're able to digest these big uh, data chunks copying everything over the internet probably or at least line it's going to take a lot of time and can be quite expensive so for anything that's pretty much data uh, transforming workloads i don't see it happening on the other hand if you're looking at for example a spark workload a in-memory analytics it might make sense to have some virtual resource available somewhere to be able to process a bigger in-memory data chunk today which you don't need tomorrow the trick is again going to be to have low enough latency between your on-prem and your virtual environment and as i heard a colleague say last week unless there's more than a cardboard wall in between you're probably not going to be able to do it yeah yeah i think some options would be if you have you know a base data set that you're referring back to and maybe that's permanently synced on you know something like s3 that we were talking about earlier so it's very easy for for them to spin up against that reference environment then you know that might work um you know other options i guess would be if you have um you know streaming workloads that are coming in maybe you could spin up that streaming ingest workload on the cloud environment and maybe that could process additional overspill sync it to s3 or sync it to some uh, cloud storage environment and then when the peak dies down you could then drain that uh, cloud storage environment off at your own leisure back into your primary on-premise data lake so you know i think that's another option that would work yeah but then you're using more than one cluster really you would have a local cluster and a cloud cluster and have some kind of a data flow mechanism in between that does that uh, filling up topping off of the uh, uh, reservoir yep yep okay moving on to the final question can i dedicate certain nodes to a certain workload well already answered a little bit of that in the second question today with uh, your node labels you're able to dedicate nodes to certain workloads and that can be a cost-driven decision because some partner uh, solutions install stuff on the worker nodes and you need to buy a license for each worker node so being able to say that only 20 percent of your nodes has that license and you make sure that all workloads that need the license go to those nodes that's a good way of using it another way of doing it and you see this a lot with uh, people that have been using hadoop in their first use cases and they bought hardware which was more or less generic because they didn't really understand what they want yet they needed to have experience before they could make good choices and when they move on to their next uh, level of use cases maybe moving from a batch oriented workflow to streaming or real time or whatever they buy a different kind of node with more or less disks or more or less um, memory, uh, then definitely it makes sense to again create different yarn queues and dedicate nodes to be part of those queues so that all your Hive queries go to the disk intensive nodes and all your Spark uh, workloads go onto the memory uh, intensive nodes. Yeah, yeah, definitely makes sense. I mean, the the only thing that I would probably add to that is if you're using some of these uh, third party solutions that are, are that are Yarn certified, one one nice sort of additional point I'd mention 
is if you've got, um, say, you know, your your example of twenty percent of your data nodes, you're going to set yarn labels on them so they're running um, that additional third-party vendor process. Then make sure you distribute those nodes evenly above um, around the racks of data nodes that you've got. So you know, make make it or two or three nodes per rack or something like that. Because in that case, you're you're still maintaining some level of data locality. You're maintaining data locality at the rack level. So you might not be ha- no longer having um, data locality at the node level, but at least the data will be circulating around individual racks, only going up to top of rack switches and bouncing back down to the nodes that actually have the third-party process on them, rather than everything having to go over the... Uh, the, the spine network so that would be my only uh my only add-on to to your comment there yeah and a great one it is i'll uh, nominate this one for the pro tip for today well that is about all the time we have for today we do hope you have enjoyed this roaring elephant podcast we will be back in two weeks time of course with a new episode since that will be the last podcast for this year we have decided to do a kind of a year in review episode And we'll add some additional Hadoop history to it. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information. Also, we really appreciate your feedback and questions. So please do go to www.roaringelephant.org and submit your questions about Hadoop and Big Data. We'll be more than happy to discuss them in upcoming episodes. Until then, my name is Jan. And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you in two weeks' time. Bye-bye. See you then.